You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour. And we are here with our final novel of the year. Herds. Legs. Murder in Old Bombay by Nevmarch. Yeah, it's great. Chapters 1 to 24. Mm-hmm. Which is a lot. It is a lot. Off. This is, at least in my edition, close to 150 pages, which was about as long as the entire last book we yep. covered. Yep. Um, I had to be very uh, judicious, might be the right word, in how I broke up the chapters for this one, because mm-hmm. any more than a third of this book already feels like too much. Yeah, you've given us a real chore to end the year, Herds. Look, I feel like a sprint to the finish, you know? <laughs> a sprint? It can't be a sprint. You know what sprints to, are, to- right? <laughs> Well, you know what? You got to sprint through. You got to read through it real fast for, for a week to be over. You know, you're going to run out of time if you don't sprint through it. It's just a very long sprint. It's a sprint it's a that's the length of a marathon. Long sprint. <laughs> that's it. It's great, though. Well, Herds, uh, you're uh, the expert on I this am. one. Techni- you Why might- don't you tell us, tell us what we're discussing today? No, I need to remind everyone. I need to remind you, Flex, that I, I have a hard time keeping names straight, so you have to bear with me. Mm-hmm. But I will do my best. So we are solving... The mystery of two young women uh, by the names of of Bacha and Pilu Framji, uh, who fell off of a clock tower. Uh, And of course, the official report says that they committed suicide. Mm -hmm. The protagonist of our story is Captain James, known known by most of his friends as Jim, Mm -hmm. Agni Hotchery, who is a military man, at least he was, until he suffered some kind of horrible trauma. Uh, and decide to take up journalistic duties. And the story of these two women falling from the tower and their brother, Adi Franji, saying, I felt like I was left behind by them, has triggered something in the young Jim Agnihotri mm-hmm. to solve solve their their deaths. Because, you know, it's probably just suicide or an accident. Right. But it he's, might be murder. He's fresh, freshly retired out of the military and had some experience investigating the death of a washerman while he was in there. Oh my goodness. All I will say for now, why it's one of my favorite parts of this story. And this is true for almost everything that Jim does, that he is a professional man and he tries to like make sure that the privacy and the confidentiality of his clients is at the front of his mind, even going so far as to write his notes in very bad French that even he can't understand. <laughs> and, and he, he, you know, when he first regales us with the tale of the washer boy who was cruelly murdered, he says, yep, I solved the mystery of the dead washer boy. That's all we get. But as, but as the novel goes on, more and more characters start telling about the story and it just gets worse for Jim. Like every time we like uncover the the granularity of what's going on in his life, we realize how like how in over his head he really is. Yeah, that's one thing that's really interesting about his characterization is that I feel compared to a lot of other detectives that we've covered, this story is about him. Yes. You know, so often we get the detective rocking up to a scene and the story is about the people around them, the people whose community that they've come into. And this is a story a bit more about in the spirit of Watson, someone coming back, retiring from service in the military and finding themselves. Come on. The man lives in a little house just behind a baker, a bakery. Like the, the analogy is there. He would be annoying if he wasn't so admirable, you know, if he wasn't so charming. Yeah. I mean, he, he has, a job at the start of the novel working for the Chronicle newspaper, mm-hmm. uh, paying what seems to be a good wage, and he's quite pleased with it from another wealthy individual in uh, in Bombay. 
and then rocks up to the Framjis and they're like, yeah, we can do better than that. Yeah, we can. We can <laughs> that's, just, that's the opening. Yeah, we'll pay you more and also we'll provide you meals so you don't actually have to spend anything and clothes yeah. and lodging many times and a doctor. And like, they're not just paying him his salary. They're providing for him in every other way that they can. It's so clear how much privilege these these people have, right? It's so brilliant too, because in the context of a mystery novel, my immediate reaction when someone says, yes, I would like to completely oversee your investigation, I go, that's suspicious. Well, I, I think that there's a really good balance in this novel of striking the relationship with the Framjis with Jim's character, because they have so little to do with each other socially. And that's why the fish out of water thing kind of works here. But, like, a protagonist-driven novel is something that is very modern and consistent in a lot of new releases. This came out Absolutely. just last year, for example. Mm-hmm. But I think that the blend of a character coming into a circumstance <laughs> outside of their norm in the mystery vein and this character-driven novel here works really well because of that, like, both mistrust and sense of generosity that they well, have the whole way through the novel. One of my favorite scenes in this opening sets of chapters, like obviously my favorite scene is the dance scene where the the older sister Diana dances with Jim and it's all very scandalous and it's amazing because she's the best character. She's I may be in love flex. We'll have to talk about her as we go through this book. It's so great. They bring her in and she's like, I'm your Watson. And Jim more or less says, but I'm already Watson. (laughs) Yeah. Well, he wants, he also like wants Artie to be his Watson. Like he's he's seeking out. That's the thing. He comes in being like, I need to find a Watson. Oh, Artie would be good. He could like help me out. And then Diana's like, hmm. I don't think so, brother. <laughs> Get out of the room. <laughs> this is my man. It's like, great. I'm gonna, I'm gonna look after him. It's great. <laughs> but my, my, one of my actual like analytically favorite scenes, you know, for like the the themes of the novel is when, yeah, yeah. Very early on, I believe it's Artie and his father are discussing bringing Jim into the case, and Jim he happens to walk out on a balcony and he hears them saying, "But what if Jim finds out about our terrible secrets?" Mm-hmm. And they say, and and, and Artie says. I, don't, I think that we can trust Jim without terrible secrets. And so then in the next scene, Jim walks up to him and says, I heard you talking about all those terrible secrets that you have. I want you to know that I'm a, I, you can trust me with your terrible secrets. I'm like, we don't know what those secrets are yet. Yep. <laughs> but the trust that is happening between these characters is uncharacteristic, I think, of a, of a murder mystery novel where we're kind of supposed to be suspecting everyone at this point, right? Like, yeah. everyone is on the table in some capacity. Well, it's also specifically that Jim, he, he's both completely aware that he's in a murder mystery <laughs> in a sense <laughs> because he's straight up, he's like, oh, yes, I love Sherlock Holmes. I'd love to be the Sherlock on this case. <laughs> And yep. then, and then just walks in and assumes that he's he's talking to all the good guys. Like, yes, yes, it's so good. He's so like unaware of the tropes of the genre, despite being so into like becoming Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, I love it. It's it's not as cruel as something that's in Robert Robert Gott's work, and it's not as like cathartic as I've seen it. You know, he's not getting whacked around or anything, but that sincerity that comes with with his character is that you you want him to succeed you want him to ride that line and you want his trust in other people to to bear good fruit by the end of the novel and we'll see if it does yeah we'll see how that goes well i mean the other thing that's kind of interesting is that we have a large supporting cast who don't get a lot of we screen do. time because this Huge. stretch of the novel at least so far 
is very focused on the wealthy families. Yes. You know, even though we do have the librarian and the clerk who saw the crime and the suspect who was originally on trial but was acquitted. Oh, my goodness. And, you know, there's a comment about how he was acquitted by the courts but not by the public, which I thought was kind of cute when we're coming at it from a journalist's perspective, more or less. Absolutely. It's really interesting seeing him bounce between all of these characters. And it's almost like he's not searching for clues at some points because he's so consistent, because he's never trying to trick anyone because he's never holding anything back it means that we get a what i feel is a very accurate representation of the other characters in the story rather than feeling subverted by the detective's tricks while they're trying to figure out the characters as well they they see this unassuming sherlock wannabe and they say all right i'm gonna throw my whole self against them right yeah especially when it comes to our bumbling policeman who you know in a sherlock story sherlock will be running rings around him but in this Jim is intimidated by Superintendent McIntyre in in many ways. I think the real cool thing there as well is that McIntyre is so up to scratch on his like yes. military vernacular yes, yes. that Jim is immediately pushed into the position of feeling like he's talking to a superior. That's exactly what it is, right? Because he's pulling on that string of his past life. Uh, McIntyre has this hold over him, so he can't he he can't do the thing that you would expect to like run circles around the policeman unless he can actually you know, be smarter than McIntyre. Before we try and insufficiently cram uh, another point of discussion into our 10 minutes of praise about just Jim, let's wrap this segment there and we can come back and kind of talk about the rest of the stuff in the mystery section and pitch what might be my worst theory all year. I am so ready for your worst theory. And honestly, look, you're going to love what we got in store for you next week. There's going to be plenty of time to talk about the mystery. Don't you worry. <laughs> You're listening to Death of the Reader. We are discussing Nev March's Murder in Old Bombay from 2020. Stick around. You're on to SCR 107.3. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here with you. And today we are, of course, covering Murder in Old Bombay by Nev March. And we have the absolute pleasure of being joined by this novel's author herself. Nev, first of all, welcome to the show. And second of all, thank you so much for pitching the novel to the show. It's not often that we get that. And I have to say, you've made an absolute stellar impression with the with this part of the novel today. Thank you. So thrilled to be here. Delighted mm-hmm. to talk to you about murder in old Bombay. It's a really interesting pitch coming into this novel is the first <laughs> thing that I wanted to observe before we get into the into the questions because N- nitty gritty, yeah. At, at, at this point, I'm only a third of the way into the book. Jim's uh still just roaming around with the Framgees and having a great time enjoying life. My expectation before we continue with the rest of this story is that we were just going to stick around old Bombay. But in the first part of the show today, when I made that assertion, mm-hmm. Herds laughed in a way that tells me I'm, I'm in for anything, but yeah, <laughs> I could have laughed the same way. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so Herds, I guess, yeah, I'll let you kick this one off, but sure. I'll let you know before we begin. I'm terrified. Yeah. Like the way that we've talked about on the show, obviously we haven't read the whole thing yet. And I'm holding all of the cards, as I often do, uh, as I do 50% of the time. But this story is 
you know, it's it's part murder mystery, it's part romance, it's part war drama, which is what? crazy to me. Look, we're going to get into it next week. You just prepare yourself. Prepare yourself. I'm prepared. I'm prepared. But um, I, I wanted to, to dial things down a little bit. Now, now Nev, it's no secret that the adventures of, of Jimothy uh, Agnihotri uh, in your story are somewhat of a mirror to those of, of Sherlock Holmes, uh, who is, you know, also known for running around and doing all sorts of action adventures sort of things. Um, specifically, Sign of the Four, that novel was brought, uh, brought up very early in Murder in Old Bombay. Now, both of these novels deal with the, the dichotomy that exists uh, between Indian and, and English in a time of strife, um, with Jim often using his love of home stories to to motivate himself and influence his actions. Um, he's clearly built a, a skill set to, to sort of mirror his detective heroes. Do you think that real-life detectives might shape themselves around the life of Sherlock Holmes, the ultimate detective? So, yes, I, I do think that police detectives, private detectives, all sorts of detectives are certainly going to be looking to the, the greats, right? And they're, they're manuals. It's just that they're written as stories, so you can't put them down. But there, there's so much in them that is part and partial today of um, you know, proper investigation procedures, probably a lot more methodical, uh, those leaps of insight, perhaps, that Holmes, you know, sits there and fiddles away or, I don't know, smokes away a pipe or worse, mm-hmm. I, I think might be frowned upon, perhaps, by the uh, superiors of um, said detective. But we in literature, in fiction, we are allowed these happy coincidences and insights and moments of epiphany, frankly, because if I wrote a book the way that I think um, actual cases is um, mm. investigated. I would probably put you to sleep on page number three. <laughs> yeah, I, I also think that you know, if you were to, if you were to get into a, a modern story and a lawyer was to be next to your suspect before you did the breakdown scene and the lawyer would mm. say, "Don't say anything," and then the entire the entire unveiling of the crime just falls apart because. It's, 90% of it is waiting for the culprit to admit to things because they're so angry you got it yeah, right. It wouldn't feel very satisfying in the end, would it? But I do enjoy the, I mean, on TV shows, you have this this enormous banter, this this dialogue, um, you know, where the, the implicit bias of the criminal comes into light or, you know, how does the detective tease out those little pieces of information that mean nothing when they're first said, but then later on mean a whole lot. How do you get that out? How do you just tell that story? I find that fascinating because yeah. it's a dance in human nature. And that's where I find, and that's the reason I pitched you guys, I find our preconceived notions of how minorities might behave and think and, yeah. and operate uh, to be so false. I have a bringing in India for 24 years. My parents were middle class. And yet when I see Indians portrayed in the media, I'm horrified, frequently horrified. Either we're techies and uh, or we have arranged marriages or mm-hmm. uh, we're utterly beset by family traditions and are so limited. And, and, you know, some of that may be true in some families, but certainly not the prototype. It's, it's stereotyping to the nth degree. And I wish we had more such normal, fun families um, or even normal, unfun families. <laughs> well, it's it's funny you talk about families because there is a family central to the the novel Murder in Old Bombay, and that's the Frangie, the Frangie family. And I know yeah. that you never much. You, you are a Parsi Zoroastrian, and yes, I, I'd I love am a to. Yeah, yep. I, I'd love to know how you channeled 
uh, your own personal experience into the struggles of the Framji family. Um, they're just because they're they're trying to to modernize to adapt with the times, but but also not lose sight of their own their own culture, right? Yeah, and you are so right. So so this is um, this is about a particular small community of Parsis, and what that means is they are descendants of medieval refugees who came from Iran, from Persia to India mm. in about roughly the year 1000. It's a very small community, less than 100,000 people in the whole world, had an enormous effect on uh, the history of India. And in fact, the this story, my, my novel is based upon a true unsolved crime from the turn of the century. Embedded in the book are a number of social messages, frequently writers, hide these things in there, but I've made no, um, you know, secret of it, that this is a little bit of a crusade for me to try to modernize my community. And and the way I chose to do it was from the point of view of an outsider who loves them, who eventually essentially falls in love with the whole family, not lock, stock and barrel. <laughs> and uh, the struggle that the orthodoxy in my community faces is should we obey these age-old rules that are driving us into the ground? Yeah. Essentially, we're you know close to facing extinction if we follow those rules. And the, the rules are patrilineal. So essentially, if a girl marries outside the community, she's lost. Her children are lost to the community, and um, and then so on. You know, there's no uh, there's no conversion of anyone who wants to join the community. So it gets narrower mm. and narrower through time. Yeah, I thought there was a. I don't know if sweet is like the right word for this moment, but there's there's that moment that Jim walks out and like comes across Artie and Berger talking about this tragic event in the family's past. And I thought it was a real good look at the way that Berger is already struggling with these things. You know, it's not just that he's openly uh, or even quietly trying to fix these issues that you're talking about. It's that someone else in the family's history has already done something to throw his, you know, moral compass into chaos. We don't know what it is yet. Mm. Um, yeah. But the idea that it doesn't matter whether or not he wants to deal with these issues, they're upon him. Um, so we get a, a, an interesting piece of context for like why he approaches Jim the way that he does because of that. Oh yeah. And, and that uh, thread will continue because while Jim has this, you know, issue of identity, he's also got father issues because, you know, he longs for a father who would accept him. Uh, you know, these, these are things that we say versus the things that we, you know, don't know about ourselves. And so um, that thread, that relationship of Jim and Barjor is going to be another um, foundational piece to the novel. I can't tell you what joy it was to write this book. It, it you know, it just spooled out like this, marvelous movie in my head and I just was obsessed by it uh, until I, I could write it all out. So yeah, there's a lot in there. There are layer yeah, <laughs> on layer for you to discover. I think I think the last thing that I wanted to ask before we uh, before we bid you farewell for this week and have you back on later in the show to talk about things once they're all revealed mm -hmm. is that reading this novel, I felt really similar to reading other stories we've read about cities like Shanghai around the world, which kind of had the same British influence come in, make a small British colony off on the far side of the world only for things to change and almost like be forgotten how advanced that culture can be. 
because, the, you know, the West essentially abandoned it in one way or another. Why do you think we so easily forget uh, how far people all around the world can go? And why do you think it's so important to challenge that? Yeah, I, I think we uh, are all guilty of a West-centric view of the world. Uh, it's just how our news dominates, um, you know, our, our thoughts and, and our perceptions of the world. How we see things represented in media matters. And this is why minority representation matters. I saw a video about Iran and, and I was astonished at how modern the cities, the streets, the educational institutions, the people sitting in cafes. I'm like, oh, my God, I thought Iran was a backwater. How mistaken I was. And it occurred to me that I had not seen that representation on media. And I watch the news. I watch, um, you know, documentaries and so on. And I had not come across that representation. Where are those, you know, beautiful series about traditional and, and, and modern stories about these other places in the world? And they're fascinating to me. So I hope they encourage you to read more international literature. Well, yeah. I mean, we, we were chatting with, with, with Neb just before we went live. Like, why did you guys even do Death of the Reader? How did this come about? And there's a reason why we have the subtitle around like murder mystery around the world because we want to spotlight those stories from around the world that are influential and important. Yeah. That's like what it's all about, you know? You rock. You <laughs> guys <you>. rock. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, Nev, I think uh, for this week, we'll wrap up, but we'll be having you back on uh, when when things are concluded so I can pick and tease your brain about what a absolute mess I'm sure we're about to to go into of the best variety so thank you for joining us this week on Death of the Reader thank you enjoy this is your murder mystery world tour here on 2SCR 107.3 and we'll be back with more of Murder in Old Bombay by Neff March right there in just a second you're listening to Death of the Reader Flex and Herds here for your murder mystery world tour we are here discussing Nev March's Murder in Old Bombay, our last novel for the year, Herds. Yeah. I look, I'm ready. I'm having a blast with it. I'm glad. But I have a problem. What do you mean? I need to I need to get out the gates. What could possibly be your problem with this extremely long novel with way too many characters? The setup of the crime is uh-huh. the two women oh, no. fell from a tower. Oh no. Is this a is this a math thing? Is this is that where this is going? What 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 about my comments so far suggests mathematics to you? I'm herds? worried because you've called you've called it the setup. I'm worried this is gonna just of course get you're crazy right. The pants. setup in murder mystery always implies mathematics. Anyway, it is about mathematics. Here's the thing. Good, it is great. Here's the thing. You know me too well. We are told that these women fall about two minutes apart from a bell tower. Yep. That rings every fifteen minutes. They fell at about five two a bell ringing. Mm-hmm. One of them fell at the foot of the tower. It's implied they fell a short distance away, though it's never really explicitly stated. The oddity, though, is that one of the girls uh, was pushed 20 feet further away from the tower. It's true. It's six meters. It's pretty absurd if they now, fell, I don't know if you're yeah. familiar with your projectile motion, Ben, mm-hmm. but how, how long would you guesstimate it would take you to fall from a uh, 200 feet or 60 meter tall tower. I don't know. I don't do math. Uh, Just take a guess. Just take a wild guess. You know, 10 seconds, let's say. Okay. Seems like, that's like a nice long four, right? It's 3.5. I was close then. It's a a pretty short window. And 20 feet 
further away or six meters further away isn't a lot. I want to be clear. It is not unreasonable to suggest that someone could jump six meters away from a uh, from a 60 meter tall building. However, okay. yep. uh-huh. it is quite a bit of distance, I think, for someone to go without a run-up. Okay. So maybe they did have a run-up. Maybe that happened. What, what is your what is your problem with this, exactly? Are you saying that they couldn't have just been The only plausible or? explanation here is that they were running okay. to be able to clear that much distance. Because like the it. speed that they would have to be going at is about a fast jog. Are you saying that there couldn't have been like a big gust of wind or something? I'm just saying. It'd have to be maybe, a beefy maybe. gust of wind. I don't think the tower would have survived a gust of wind that beefy unless they were wearing parachute pants, which I don't think were a thing in 1892. We didn't get to see them. We didn't get to see their body. Like, you know, the, the detective didn't get to see their bodies. What do you think? Also, also, there was talk of some strange black cloth lying around near the scene of the crime. Maybe those are the remains of their parachute pants. You don't know. It's, it could be the case. You have to go find that rag picker and ask him what it, what they looked like. The crime is so physically ridiculous that someone would have to run off the top of this small clock tower mm-hmm. that it doesn't make physical sense and thus has to be a ruse and that everyone was mm-hmm. in on it. The whole town? The whole of Bombay? The, the, or everyone that <laughs> saw, allegedly saw the crime was it, in on it. It is pointed out that in order to blend in around the university and the tower that you should dress like a lawyer. So we'd have to suspect some kind of cabal of lawyers uh, throwing women off towers. That's right. You'd have to somehow convince a group of lawyers to all share the same opinion and not have a sense of outrageous justice. So whilst I really want to lean in there and say that this was all a lawyer cabal sticking together to stage the death of these two women, I'm also like torn on the fact that it makes no sense. (laughs) I mean, I was going to go with the trebuchet theory that they were testing out a modern, a, a new trebuchet <laughs> on top of the tower. The what? A, new, a trebuchet. The what? A trebuchet. They, they mount a trebuchet on top of the clock tower and they fire the women off. But obviously the first of course, one and when was the police dud. arrive like four minutes later, they've had time to dismantle well, the entire trebuchet. That's, the thing. that's why it's not super powerful. Like, you couldn't launch them across the city because it's, it's so small and it could back up so, so efficiently, you see. That's that's the trade-off. Of course, and because they're it's all the- wearing lawyers' robes, they could pe- pack all the yeah, parts underneath their robes and just ropes. leave. And just walk out. And in their suitcases, <laughs> done. <laughs> Trebuchet theory. Man, I wish I had gotten this, this story to solve. This would have been great. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, give me the projectile motion calculations of a trebuchet, please. <laughs> can we can we get that in the show notes? Can we get the producers to put that down the please line for us? I know that a trebuchet is more powerful than this, but it would be a pretty funny <laughs> trebuchet to only fire someone like 20 feet away from you. That'd be pretty great. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it only fires downwards. <laughs> here's here's the point awful. that I'm going to make, though, Hertz. Uh-huh. In the current rules of the game, mm-hmm. what rules? We have to pose a different theory week one to two. We do, we do. And whilst I have an inkling of an idea of what I what I think I would pose in actuality for this crime, I think okay. based on the rules of the game, based on the convolutions <laughs> that we have set ourselves, <laughs> okay. I'm going to this week yep. logistically have to go for a uh, we a, have plenty a of cabal theories of lawyers. Okay, sure. I'm putting together this crime. I'm I'm kind of surprised you haven't mentioned. Uh, I mean, there are other characters in this novel. There's Tom Byram, who is the editor at the Chronicler, and at the end of this section of of chapters, like mm-hmm. put out a story to basically shout to the world that Jim was like on the case. I, you don't think? Do you think he might be involved at all? Oh, absolutely. I I think I think entirely. I think what's happened here, right? 
is that is that Berger has done something that it, that has offended the sensibilities of of the union between British and traditional values mm-hmm. in Bombay. Okay. I think that Adi has stepped in and ha- has made this scene to you know, I don't know highlight the tradition of uh, the importance of traditional values to to highlight the importance of unity with the British Empire. I'm not sure exactly where he's landing at the moment. Okay. It's a little up in the air. Okay. But with a friend like Tom Byram, the, mm. the head editor of the Chronicle, who just happened to have an investigatively leaning journalist on staff who was just about to start for a wage that you just so happened to be able to mm-hmm. top on a moment's notice. It, it is a little bit weird. I, they're in on weird. something together. They're in on something together. Who who goes out and celebrates a detective doing their work before they have any solutions? You know, no, I definitely wouldn't. I I'm ready. Uh, I'm in shambles at good. the moment. I think that Nevmarch has at least thus far in the story outplayed me. Good, good. I like to hear that. Um, I think it's all this romance. This, this is why I have to play the projectile motion theory in this first week. You're falling for the wiles of of Diana Framji, the 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 secret culprit of <laughs> of everything else in the story that isn't murder. Clearly, in our in our second last show before review season herds what are the chapters we're going to be covering uh yeah we're going to be covering uh chapter from chapter 25 all the way to chapter 42 all right fantastic herds i'm terrified that i'm going to have to put something uh a little less mathematically inclined and a little more i know that is your strong suit after attention to the text lawyers and mathematics and cabals I understand. Demon summoning. That's okay. I'm sure we'll get there next time. But hey, what a what a fun book to wrap up the year. Banger pick herds. Well, thank you. Thank you to Nev March as well for actually pitching it to us. I was you gonna know, say. If you're listening to the show, you've written a written yourself a good murder mystery, you want to pitch it to us. There are Email address is up on the page at 2SER.com slash death of the reader with a hyphen in between each of the last four words there. Yeah. Looking forward to doing even more crazy wild murder mysteries. I would love to do more historical murder mysteries. I'm really enjoying. I mean, there is a wealth of these. But look, I know that at least part of this novel we're reading is based off of true stories. And that terrifies me. There's some crazy stuff in this book. So we'll have to uh, we'll have to interrogate that further. We'll interrogate it next week, I think. It's gonna be great. Fantastic. <laughs> Possibly traumatic. This is Death of the Reader, your murder mystery world tour here on 2SER. The book is Murder in Old Bombay by Nev March, and we'll be back with more of that next week. This is 2SER 107.3. 